That's going to be the song that brings us back together from the greeting time, at least for the next few weeks, okay? So we're trying out something new, as seems like we do just about every week, trying something new. But we will sing that song together, it will pull us back together, and if you notice, those words are a prayer for the Lord to speak through His Word. It's appropriate for us to raise that prayer together, asking God to open His Word to us. And that's what we're asking Him to do right now. We are starting a new series this morning that we're going to continue through this summer, a series on the Psalms. And we're not going to do every Psalm, we're not going 150 week series here, Um, but we are going to do some select Psalms this summer, and I think this is a great, uh, it's a great time for us to meditate really on what is the hymn book of God's people in the Old Testament. That's what the collection of psalms really was. It was songs that they would sing in worship and in their homes that would remind them, that would shape them, that would give voice to their praise, that would give voice to their lament, that would give voice to the truth of who God is. It's a good time for us to to sit this summer and be shaped by these wonderful words that God's people have been singing and reciting for literally thousands and thousands of years. We are starting where Julie Andrews would say is a very good place to start, and that is at the beginning in Psalm 1. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 1. It's also printed in your bulletin if you would like to follow along there. Listen now as I read from God's Word, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask you to speak, to speak through your word, to shape and fashion us in your likeness. That we might be those who sing your praises, who reflect your glory. That our hearts might actually be shaped by your word rather than the voices of the culture around us. We pray that you would open your word to us this morning. That you would soften our hearts and open our ears to hear what you have to say. And Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus. That we would see him clearly. That we would come to see his great love for us and that we would love him in return. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. There is a, uh, a song that I have liked for quite some time. It is, um, it is kind of old. It came out in 1992. It's called The Maker of Noses by a guy named Rich Mullins, a Christian artist in the 90s uh, who died actually in the late 90s. And I love this song. And it goes, let's see if I can remember it because I forgot to print it out. Um, I believe there is a place where people live in perfect hope or perfect harmony, where work is rewarded, where rest is sweet. Where, uh, where the color of your skin won't keep you out or get you in. And everybody that I know wants to go there. And they hope that it comes really soon. 
But when I ask them how to get there, they all seem so confused. And this is the chorus. When I asked the world, they gave me this advice. They said, boy, just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. They said, boy, just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams is the one I have chosen. And I will follow him. I love everything about that song. I love the cheesy 1992 production value. I love just the, the cheesy synthesizers throughout the song. I love the big drums and all the echo. It's great. Everything about it is wonderful. But I think what I love about it most is that it's those things that he mentioned that really hits the most home with me because they are some of the things that I am most prone to follow. Follow your heart. We hear this oftentimes. Follow the thing that you love. How are you going to find happiness and wholeness and flourishing and fulfillment and security in this world? Well, follow the things that you love. What is it that you love? Just follow your heart and it will lead you there. Or follow your nose, meaning what's the opportunity that's out there? Where can you find opportunity in this world and exploit that opportunity to get the things that you want out of the world? Just follow your nose. Or follow your dreams. What's what you've always wanted to do? What are your dreams? I'm convinced that you cannot get a script into the door of Disney if it doesn't have that line in it at least three or four times. That's pretty much what every Disney movie has told us for the last 20 years. Follow your dreams. That's where happiness and hope and fulfillment is to be found. You could say that in many ways, this, these are the threads, the strings that kind of tie American culture together. These are the things that we oftentimes live by. This is a description of what our culture values deeply. To follow our own hearts, to follow our own noses and finding opportunity, to follow our own dreams. That I will be the center of authority in my life. It will begin and end with me. That is not a new concept, by the way. Uh, Late 19th century poem you've probably heard of called Invictus. It says this, these words, listen to this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, and I'm sure you've heard these words, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That Invictus mentality... The, the idea that I am the captain of my soul, that my autonomy, my happiness, my pursuit of choice, all of those things are actually what make me happy and secure and flourishing in my world. So really, it begins and ends with my own authority. Now, of course, agency is a good thing. We should desire that. We should seek to promote that for others. Responsibility is a good thing. We should desire that. We should want to be responsible people. Hard work is a good thing. We should desire that. Those are all biblical concepts. But when we have gotten so far that really the the authority in my life begins and ends with me, and all of my happiness and all of my fruitfulness and flourishing and anything that makes me whole or healthy in my life is really all up to me and what I do in my pursuit of happiness, then we have gone way too far. But friends, that really is one of the basic tenets of our culture. It has been for quite some time. There's a woman named uh, Dr. Kathy Koch. She's a psychiatrist. She deals mostly with children and teens. And she writes and speaks a lot about particularly the interaction of, of technology and our children. And she has some really fascinating things to say. 
she says that that our culture really values these five kind of basic values that, that our children have bought into. That our children have bought into to say, these are the basic values that I'm going to live my life by. And I think she's really hit on something. Listen to what these values are. Here's the first one. See if you can hear also resonance from that poem Invictus, written more than 100 years ago, showing up here in what she's talking about as contemporary culture. Listen to this. Here's the first value. I am the center of my universe. We live in a time where everything is on demand. Right? I can get whatever I want. I can watch any of my television shows whenever I want to, wherever I want to. I can do pretty much anything I want. If I have, I can open up the thing that fits in my pocket and I have a, I have the whole world in my pocket. I'm the center of my universe. I get to control all of that. That's value number one. How about the second one? I deserve to be constantly happy all the time. I deserve happiness all the time. It is incredibly easy in the culture that we live in to never be bored, to never have to do something difficult, to never actually have to work at something, to never have to wait for something. And so we are telling each other, and we are telling our children, you've got to be happy all the time. That's really one of the basic values. Here's the third one. I must always have choices. I must always have the choice to make. We live in a world of drop-down menus where we can always go find something different. We have DVRs that give us thousands of television shows to watch. We have the Internet that can give us thousands of different places to go to find information. I've got the choice all of the time. Here's the fourth one. I am my own authority. I'm the one who says what happens and what doesn't happen. I'm the one who says when things stop and start, I have that power in my hands. And with technology, in many ways, we do have a lot of that power. And the fifth one is this, is that because I have so much information at my fingertips, I don't really need anybody to teach me. I don't need people to lead me, to guide me. Because since I'm my own authority and I've got so much information, I can go find it out all on my own. Now, I've got two uh, pieces of really bad news for you. Those five things are not true. They are lies that their culture promotes. And here's the really second bad thing, is that it's not just our kids who are believing them. (laughs) It's adults who believe the same things. Is that we have bought in, in many ways, hook, line, and sinker to these five lies that say, I'm the center of my universe And more choice equals more happiness for me. And more control equals more flourishing for me. And the more that I'm in control of everything and keep it all together, the more secure that I am. There is a central purpose in Psalm 1. It is to encourage and promote the the engagement with God's word, his eternal word, that leads actually to happiness and fulfillment and fruitfulness, and flourishing, and security. What the Lord is telling us in Psalm 1 is that we are called against those lies that our culture oftentimes promotes, and we are called actually to find our wholeness in Him, in the external authoritative Word of God, in God's Word revealed to us that is the foundation for who we are called to be. And it's those actually that attach themselves to God's word, that are regularly attached to his word, that find real happiness, that find real flourishing, that find real security in their lives. In fact, those three words, happiness, flourishing, security, they kind of actually even govern the way that Psalm 1 is laid out. 
It's laid out in three stanzas. So let's just kind of walk through these three stanzas and see what the Lord is telling us through Psalm 1 here today. Stanza 1, starting in verse 1, he says this, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He immediately really gives us two kinds of people, and he'll explain this a little bit more as we go out throughout the psalm. But you have this one type of person called the righteous later in the psalm, and you have this other type of person called either the wicked or sinners or scoffers. They're really all kind of coterminous here for us. But they are, uh, they are, they are really marked by two varying ways of approaching life. One approaches life as I'm the center of my universe. I will find all authority in my own autonomy. And one actually says, I'm going to actually come under the authority of God and his revealed word. When you hear this word righteous in Psalm 1, and actually elsewhere in the Psalms in many times, we oftentimes think of the word righteous in kind of moral absolute terms. And so this is righteous means moral perfection. That's not really the way that it's being used here. When, when the psalmist uses the word righteous, when he calls people the righteous, he is talking about those who have attached themselves to God's word. Not perfectly, but have attached themselves to God's word and are regularly living within its boundaries, under its influence and under its authority. Say, how does he describe the person who is regularly attached to God? Well, the first thing, the first word we have in this psalm is, blessed is the man. Blessed is this person who attaches himself to God's word in regular and in consistent study and delight. That word blessed is probably best translated for us here, happy. Happy is this person. It's ironic, isn't it? That the promotion that we get, those five lies even, they say, in order to find fulfillment and happiness in your life, you will have to pursue your own autonomy. In order to find happiness and fulfillment in your life, you will have to find upward mobility. You will have to find wealth. You will have to find choice. You will have to find all of the trappings of all of those things, right? And that's where you find happiness in your life. That that really is, you know, that that's... That is proclaimed through the loudspeakers of our culture in many ways. But it's fascinating. If you actually read a lot of studies that are done, whenever they do kind of these studies of like finding, you know, happiness scales and who are the happiest people in our country, they rank these cities. I remember a few years ago, they came out with a top ten of happiest cities in the country and like five of them were in Louisiana. Like one of the poorest states in the country. In fact, what country in the world has really the highest upward mobility, greatest wealth, most choice. So when we live in. 2012, I think, there was a study done for the whole world on happiest countries. Guess where we ranked? 33rd. 33rd. Maybe happiness isn't equated with wealth and choice and upward mobility and autonomy. Maybe happiness is actually equated with something else. What the psalmist tells us today, what he tells us here in these first couple of verses of Psalm 1, is that the happy man actually finds himself attached to God's word. That he meditates on it. That he lives by it. That he actually rejoices in it. 
And yes, even he rejoices in the constraints given by God's word. There's that bristling again. Happens for me. The constraints given by God's word. That those constraints are even things that we can take pleasure in. Think about if you have a fish in a fishbowl. Sitting on your counter. Nice pretty fish. He's swimming around. That fishbowl is a pretty big constraint for that fish. There's some limits given to that fish, right? You could say, wow, look at these terrible constraints. The fish is not free. He can't experience his life to the fullest because he's not autonomous, because he's got these terrible constraints around him from the fishbowl. Well, if you take the fishbowl away from that fish, I guarantee you he is going to be a less happy fish, not a more happy fish. Because it's actually the constraints, the bowl that gives him life. It keeps him actually in the bounds of life. Happiness comes not from the pursuit of our own autonomy, but comes from regular engagement with God's word. All right, let's look at that second verse now. The second, excuse me, the second kind of stanza. Stanza 2 says this. He, that man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The second stanza is an illustration building on the truth that was established in the first stanza. And this one, if that first one was all about happiness, this stanza really is about flourishing. We moved here from uh, from Louisiana, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I may have told some of you this story before, but when I was a kid, we lived in Houston. And my dad would oftentimes take me driving through kind of downtown Houston. And my favorite place to go drive around was right next to, to Rice University. And there's this, this boulevard, this beautiful street that runs right next to the university. I think it's Rice Boulevard. Um, and it has these beautiful live oak trees that have been planted in the middle of this boulevard. And the trees have grown so huge. And their, their branches just hang over the street. And they make this kind of tunnel over the street, this canopy over the street. And I just was so fascinated by that as a kid. And I was like, Dad, take me down that street. I just want to drive down the tunnel of trees. I loved it so much. Well, when we went looking for a house uh, in Baton Rouge, we were out with our realtor looking around at houses. And in the afternoon, kind of close to the end of the day that we were looking at houses, we turned down this one street to go look at this house. And it was just that kind of street. Live oaks planted all down the middle of this boulevard with these amazing branches kind of hanging over. Huge trees and glorious. And I mean, I didn't even have to see the house. I was like, this is it. We're we're buying this house, you know, because it's on this street. I just loved it. I have loved those trees. Probably my favorite thing about living in Baton Rouge were those live oaks. They're amazing. They're huge. You can't even get your arms around them. Their branches go for 30, 40 feet out wide. They're incredible. When we moved here, I had a friend actually came with me to help me out, do some things, a friend from Baton Rouge. And we were driving around in our neighborhood, and, um, and he said, he said, those are interesting trees. What kind of trees are those, you know, in the, um, you know, in your front yard, and in the yards of these, uh, these, these houses in your neighborhood? And I was like... Those are live oaks, same kind of trees we had in Baton Rouge, but they were so different that he didn't even recognize them. Because they're a lot smaller here. They're a lot smaller in New Braunfels because guess what happens in Baton Rouge? It rains. It's like one of the wettest places on earth, and New Braunfels is one of the driest places in the United States. So the trees look a little bit different. But this was cool. I took him down into Landa Park, and we're walking around in Landa Park. And if you've been in Landa Park, you know what's right in the middle of the park, right? Which is probably the biggest live oak I've ever seen in my life. 
amazing tree with this incredible trunk that you can you can't even get four people's arms around it and these incredible branches that just reach out forever and ever it is the most beautiful tree in the city and guess why it is so big and so beautiful because it's sitting right next to the Komau Springs and those waters just feed that tree and feed that tree until it grows into this beautiful flourishing amazing tree That's the picture that the psalmist paints here for us of what God's word does to people. When they continuously engage in his word, we are those who end up looking not like the little skinny scrubby trees that are in my yard or like, you know, the mesquite trees that might be out on somebody's ranch, but we look more like that treaty oak right in the middle of Landa Park, right next to the stream that's just feeding it and feeding it so that it grows in an incredible way. Conversely, Conversely, the psalmist says that the people pursuing their own autonomy are actually like chaff. Chaff is, this is an agricultural term. Uh, In ancient times, they would grow wheat and they would harvest the wheat and they'd bring in with the stalks and everything and they would crush the stalks. They would oftentimes maybe have some sort of oxen walk over the stalks that break everything apart and then they would take like a pitchfork and they'd be in a place where there was a cross breeze coming and they'd throw, they'd throw this wheat up in the air and the kernels of the wheat, the one that you, what you want, what you make bread out of, it's heavy. And so it falls down to the ground, but the chaff, which is kind of the outer husk that's not edible, it's worthless, it's not good for anything, well, the wind just comes when it's falling and blows it away. And what you have left with on the ground is the kernel of wheat that you want to use, and the chaff is just blowing away in the wind. Remember those five cultural values. Just picture, this is what the psalmist says, is that they are simply blowing away like chaff. They are blowing in the wind because they're light. They have no weight or heft. They have no substance to them. They're just kind of not real. They're, they're, they're as worthless as a lie that gets spoken into the wind and then it blows away. Real flourishing, real fruitfulness comes from attachment to God's word. All right, here's the third, third stanza. This is how the psalmist concludes things for us. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, if that first stanza was about happiness happiness, and the second about flourishing, this last one really is about security. How do we find real security in life? I love the way that this psalm ends. I love, first of all, the way that it doesn't end. It doesn't end with this just kind of grand proclamation of the triumph of what the righteous have done. Look at these people who have gotten all their stuff together, and they're awesome, and look how great they are. Let's sing their praises. It doesn't end with that at all. It actually ends with a proclamation of relationship. It says that the Lord knows the righteous. Those who are attached to him are attached to him because he knows them, not because of what they've done. This word know is actually not just I know who you are, but actually I know you intimately. It's about more than information. It's about intimacy. It's a word of relationship. I went to a really big high school, graduated with like 560 people. And when I was even a senior, one of, the, one of the stupid little games that a friend of mine and I used to play before school, we would get to school a little bit early and we'd sit kind of in the commons area. We'd watch people come in and we'd call this game or we'd play this game called um, Never Seen That Guy Before. 
Okay? And we would just, we would just count the people that walked into our high school that we'd never even seen before. And I don't know, we just thought that was great. Oh, it was a big high school, never seen that guy, you know, and we just kind of laugh and chuckle and, and we go, seen him, you know, know him, know him, know her, no, never seen him, never seen that guy, never seen her before. It was just kind of fun. In a weird way. But what was really cool is that when we were playing that game, if somebody who was a friend of ours would come in, everything changed. Because it was no longer never seen that person or seen them or know him, but it was, oh, I know him. That's my friend. And we'd stop, we'd get up from where we were, and we'd go give him a warm embrace or a high five. We'd say hello. We'd start to engage actually in relational conversation. That's what this word know means, is that the Lord actually knows us deeply. He has drawn himself close to us. He has made himself known to us. That is the reason that we can feel secure. That is the reason that we can draw near even to his word as he has revealed to us, is because he has actually known us. This is really important, y'all. You really honestly will not understand the Bible in general and not understand the concept of sin and of righteousness until you get this concept here. Okay, this was a huge thing for me. I used to kind of think, okay, there's this idea of there's good things and there's bad things and God kind of likes the good things and he doesn't like me to do the bad things, but mostly he doesn't like me to do those things because those are the fun things and he doesn't really want me to have all that much fun. So I kind of have to live under his thumb for most of my life. That was my conception of God growing up. And there was an enormous change in me when I realized that's not the way that the Bible presents the character of God. The Bible presents the character of God to be 100% different from that. As a God who knows us, who loves us, who cares for us, who wants us to flourish and be happy and be secure. And He knows what things will destroy us. And He wants us to stay away from those things. Just like a loving mother or a father would never let their child play in the interstate. It's not because they want bad things for their child. It's because they want them to live. It's because they want them to flourish. The same is true for the Lord and for His Word. He has told us, I love you. I want you to be happy. I want you to be whole. I want you to flourish. Here is the fishbowl that I've given you. (laughs) Swim in these waters and love it. And find your fruitfulness and your flourishing there. Alright, let's do just some quick application before we close. How do we put some some teeth onto this? Let me give you three things just to remember, to keep in mind. The first is this is to remember that consistent drips make a bigger impact than occasional splashes. Okay, if you, if you look at maybe a rock formation, you can actually see where the water has come down and it's consistently dripped on it over time and it's carved out a hole. It's actually done something to that rock. If there's an occasional splash, even if it's a pretty big splash, even if it's an occasional just kind of river that comes by, it doesn't do anything to the rock. It doesn't change it. It's actually the consistency that begins to wear it away that changes things. And when you see a lot of consistency, over time you get things like the Grand Canyon. Okay, That is much more impactful. The consistent drips are much more impactful than the occasional kind of mountaintop experiences. So when we talk about engagement with God's Word, let's talk about it in those terms. How do we bring ourselves regularly before his word in approachable ways? It sometimes can get really, it's messed me up in the past when I've thought, okay, all right, I've got I to get more into God's word. I'm going to read the whole Bible next month, right? 
swing and a miss on that one. Yeah, that never works. When we go, you know, how can I make this huge splash? It's not going to work as well. How can we consistently draw ourselves near to God's word in a way that is regular, not perfect, but regular and consistent? So that's the first thing to remember. Here's the second thing, is that we've got to preach to ourselves what is true. If we have those lies blaring kind of from the loudspeakers of our culture, then we have to actually talk to ourselves. Nobody listens to you more than, nobody speaks to your mind more than you do. Okay, so you're the one that actually speaks to you more than anybody else speaks to you. So make sure you know what you're saying to yourself. We've got to preach to ourselves the truth. We've got to actually preach to ourselves the kind of the, the response to those five lies, right? Is that God is actually the center of the universe. Is that I'm not the center of my universe, the Lord is. Is that the Lord is actually the author of happiness, not me. Is that more choice does not equal more happy for me. That's not the way the equation works. Uh, God's word is actually my loving authority, and I've come to find my flourishing in it. And finally, that I, that I really do need a guide. I really do need somebody to teach me. I really do need somebody to lead me. And my loving and caring father who has given himself for me has done that. And he has called me to follow him. And here's the third thing that we remember is that we have to always remember what has Jesus done for us? What has the Lord done for us that enables us to come and draw near to him? Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 1. In fact... Uh, If you read through the Psalms, I would encourage you even this summer to spend, carve out some time this summer to spend some time meditating on the Psalms and see how the Lord fulfills them all. See where Jesus is found in all of these. See, there is one who has perfectly held tightly to God's word. There is one who has perfectly shown us what it means to be happy and fruitful. But here's the amazing thing about his story. There's a tree in his story too, right? He just ends up nailed to it. There, there, is, there is flourishing in his story as well. It just happens to be the flourishing that he has made available to us, not his own. There, there's judgment in his story as well, but he comes off as the one who is accused. And he has done all of that so that we might actually be known by the Lord, so that we might be brought into his family, so that we might come under the beauty of his authority and his word. Is that not a Savior worth following? Let's pray that the Lord would make our hearts those who would want to follow him today. Father, thank you for giving us Psalm 1. Thank you for this great picture of what it looks like to flourish. we got lots of other pictures that get flashed in front of our eyes all the time. It's good that we meditate on this, the true and the right picture Will you shape our hearts in that direction today? Will you show us what it looks like to be, to come under your authority, to find our happiness and our fulfillment, our flourishing, our security, to find them in you? We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us, and we do pray in your name. Amen.